What's up, everyone? I'm Will Fulton, and this is Thrillist Best and the Rest. It's our weekly podcast revolving around all of our favorite topics in food, drink, travel, and entertainment, all the fun stuff. So we have a big episode today. It's based around Thrillist's massive annual editorial project, The Best New Restaurants of 2019. So we're definitely going to be talking about how our panel made their picks, how you, yes you, at home, can dine out like a food critic, and we'll also be touching on some of the most controversial food trends of the year. So we wanted to start things off a little differently today. We did a little pre-game lunch with today's guests, Kevin, Nicole, and Adriana at Scar's Pizzeria in Manhattan's Lower East Side, because I felt like the best way to figure out how they judge restaurants is to go eat with them. Here's the thing about going out to eat with three food and drink writers and editors. You're going to ask a lot of questions, but they have a lot of answers. This is what happened. Can we get one of each slice here? And then can we get uh, two more of, which is this one? Uh, Sicilian pepperoni. Yeah, uh, so three of the Sicilian pepperoni, one of each uh, other slice. So Kevin? Yeah. When you were judging, reviewing a restaurant, sure. do you try to order something, a little bit of everything? Do you try to go for, you know, what the restaurant's known for? How do you order? Uh, I order everything. Yeah. You've got to get what they're known for. I mean, um, the ideal thing is to come with four people, right? Because then you can basically get the entire menu and... Uh, it's not a problem, and it doesn't look like you're just, like, a crazy person that's, like, sitting by themselves. Scar's Pizzeria is, for my money, one of the better joints in town. And when you walk in, you'll notice the wood paneling lining the walls, the neon beer signs behind the bar. It's obviously a riff on the classic New York City pizzeria. And obviously, this did not go unnoticed in my group. This is the first time you guys have ever been here, all three of you? It's the first time I've been here. I haven't been here either. We're all doing it. When you walked in, what was the first thing you noticed about this place? Wood paneling. Kind of like a the, the old school look, self-consciously, old mm-hmm. school, like deliberately. But then you move into the center of the restaurant and you see this awesome ass wine list. I'm like, wait, hold up. Right. This is different. Right. No, it feels like a place that you go with your grandfather and like he'd know, like his bookie would be out of the back. <laughs> and like he'd go have a sketchy conversation and then come back through. That seems weirdly specific. <laughs> yeah, it's not like that's a, a place in Springfield. <laughs> so like Scars, like he mills the flour himself. In the basement, right? In the basement, yeah. yeah. Right below us. Right below us, there's milling. Milling is happening below <laughs> us. And um, and yeah, I mean like he, he's got a great grandma slice and like yada yada. And then he and then he's he's got this atmosphere, you know, this old school atmosphere. But then he throws in the natural wine list, so it's like old school with a wink, you know. It's just his favorite stuff under one roof. That's so. interesting. The first thing I saw was the Gucci Man painting behind the bar, which is super dope. This is, you know, there's four of us. This table isn't isn't that big, but there's a lot of food in front of us. Listen, pepperoni slaps here. It's good. Yeah, I think that's the most exciting one. And then we've got you've got the classic margarita with a you know the basil, and then we've got what else? Is, there, is that a mushroom? I think that's mushroom. Yeah, like that. that's awesome. I love mushrooms. Oh, oh my god, mm-hmm. I don't know. They must marinate those mushrooms in something. Mm-hmm. Right. I feel like the 
They're definitely not button. They're so mushroomy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or like, or something. There's, there's some, there's some real action. I think they're dried. Oh, he starts with dried mushrooms? I think he's probably starting with dried like shiitake. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Look at Nicole Taylor. I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> they're very good. Those are not woodsy, but they mm. taste like a deep mushroom umami. I'm just loving it. Really? I'm just yeah. giving it some love. I'm letting it love me. <laughs> I'm having an no affair with this pizza. <laughs> so one thing I've always wondered, do these people just always judge what they're eating? Do they ever turn that side of their brain off? Can they just relax and enjoy some pizza without obsessing over the merits of the mushrooms on top of the pizza? So I ask them. I think that if you're out and you're for the express purposes of judging the restaurant, then you're always paying attention. But if you are just out to dinner with friends, if you, like you can turn it off a little bit, especially if like someone cooked you a meal. Right. Because then you just need to be cool. When we go out, we're, all of us, we're in the moment, we're, you know, there are different like lenses to, to, to experience something. We're, I'm also thinking about, like, you could ask the same question, are you paying attention to the person that you're with, you know, yeah. when you go out? Judging them, perhaps. I'm not, so. <laughs> you know how to turn it on and off all the time. When you say, because when I'm out with friends, they're like, what do you think, what do you think? And I'm like, I'm just, yeah. I turn it off. I just turn that off. But if the company is boring, <laughs> I feel like it's like, oh, it automatically goes on. So when you're, you know, at your friends, they're having a dinner party, are you silently judging their food? Oh, yeah. fuck yeah. 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 Hell fuck yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, like, there's just something so sweet about someone doing their best to provide you with an experience. Like, even if it's shitty, and I'm definitely grateful for anybody who tries, you know? Mm -hmm. That's interesting. See, that's why I wanted to ask. All right, y'all ready to blow this joint? Yep. I am. This was delicious. Thank you, Kevin. After we settled up at Scars and maybe had a couple more glasses of wine, we headed back to the studio to talk. Well, let's get into it. Today, we have kind of a big episode. My guests are Mr. Kevin Alexander, Thrillist National Writer-at-Large, Adriana Velez, our senior food editor, and Nicole Taylor, our executive food editor. So let me pose this question to the three of you. I want you guys to close your eyes. Would you do that for me? Checking. My eyes were already closed. <laughs> they were. It was very romantic. I want you to close your eyes, which you're already doing, and picture your ideal restaurant. Nicole, what do you see in your mind when you think about the perfect restaurant? A lot of french fries on the table. <laughs> <laughs> I'm outside and the weather is perfect and I'm surrounded by a lot of wood and there's a water element. A water element? Yeah. I thought you said a watermelon at first. I was like, okay, yeah. <laughs> that wouldn't hurt. That too. Kevin, what about you? There is sawdust on the floor and there is an old ornery man on a grill yelling at me. Making me a cheeseburger. I think you're just at my grandpa's house, actually. <laughs> <Is that your? laughs> you're, yes. <laughs> so this month, the, the, spearheaded by the three of you, you launched an enormous package for Thrillist, America's best new restaurants of 2019, in which you name 12 of the country's best new restaurants. You have spots in here from Brooklyn, Birmingham, Alabama, Las Vegas. Basically, you scoured the nation for the most exemplary new restaurants. That, that's a tall task, is it not? Where do you even start when you make a list like that? 
First, you take a deep breath. Okay. <laughs> uh, you know, where do you start? I think you have to start with how you're defining best. I feel like that's where we started. Wouldn't you say so, Kevin? Like, how are we defining best? I think that's super important. And then the next question, how are we tackling this mm -hmm. after you define what's the best? Well, how did you define best? Because that's a pretty valid question. Yeah, I mean, I think we tried to look at not only is the food fantastic, but how these restaurants interact with their communities, to Adriana's point. You know, are they inviting? Do they welcome uh, the local people? We're also looking at sort of how they address like a lot of issues of the day and where do they fit into the space in 2019. And also just to tackle a huge project like this, we had to call in the the Avengers across the country and get like a strong panel of food writers from everywhere to help help us scour uh, the nation. I think there are about four or five big media outlets that do a big best restaurant list. No, they don't have a panel, but I think if you like secretly send them a text or email and say, tell me, how are you guys really putting the list together? I think every single person will say, oh, I text my friend in Vegas or I went to L.A. and, you know, I had coffee or dinner with this L.A. writer and they told me about all the new restaurants open up in L.A. So instead of us just saying one person is doing this list and they're going all around the country, we're like the people that we would text or reach out to, let's just bring them in the mix and let's pay them and make this shit cool. Do you think in a package like this, it's better to use a culmination of a bunch of voices instead of just going at it with one singular person just going to all these restaurants? Yeah, I think it's it's so much more interesting to read, for one thing. I think you get a bigger picture when you have a multitude of, of viewpoints and voices in it. I think when you get more than one person in the room talking about what makes something great, what makes the best list, you get some ideas challenged, you get some ideas fortified, and it's just a stronger list that way. I know that any form of criticism or evaluation that depends on opinions can't fully account for subjective tastes, especially with food. People like what they like, but can you three talk a little bit about some of the ways that you judge a restaurant and the advice or maybe even guidelines you would give people, uh, no matter where they are, how they can look at a restaurant with a critical eye? Well, I think first, it's important to understand, like, I always think about it in terms of the narrative. Does the narrative add up? Mm -hmm. So does the restaurant make sense? Does the story of the restaurant add up to, like, all of the elements, right? So if it's um, you know, if they're telling the story of like, we're this farm to table restaurant and we've got these craft cocktails and we have, uh, like basically a lot of the modern restaurants, like, are they really doing the things that they say they do, you know? And so just asking some small questions of the wait staff of, you know, if you're sitting at the bar of the bartender, I mean, where are you getting your stuff? Just, just these little things, and you can see if they really know what they're talking about. If they're really, you know, those farm names on the chalkboard, are those really the places that you're actually getting these things through? Did you use the word farm to table? I did. Really? I know. <laughs> Is that word still in style in 2019? No, it's not. Okay. It's not. But well, I'm just you, saying, what like, do you call it? Just, just a things, restaurant? How things ought to be <laughs> how done. How things should be. But it's it's not a given. It's not a given. It became super, super trendy. And then a lot of people started kind of like doing 
like fake versions of it. They were using the lip service of it, which we see a lot of. So there were fake farm to table restaurants. Oh, there were, yeah. yeah they were yeah, just writing up like, names on the chalkboard. Right. This they're is like from... Creekstone Farms. Like that's... <laughs> no, for sure. <laughs> that the, sounds legit, though, the, to be fair. There was it's... A... There was a, a whole business. <laughs> you wrote a whole article about that. I remember that. Oh, yeah. So, um, but yeah, I, I feel like what, what Kevin's getting at is that there needs to be like a sense of integrity behind whatever it is that they're trying to tell you about who they are. You need to feel like it's really deep in the bones and that it's really thoughtful and considered. And I think like the ethos of farm to table, I mean, I still buy into this. I still want it to happen. If you're doing it right, it's not the main story. It's not the only story a restaurant is telling. Do you think that the food is just one component of an overall orchestra, one instrument in the orchestra, so to speak? How important a role does the actual food play in the overall presentation of a restaurant when you're judging it with a critical eye? Well, the food has to be delicious. You have to walk away remembering what you had. Otherwise, it's not a good restaurant. But even more than that, I feel like how did you feel? Did you feel great when you were in the space? Do you want to go again? If you walk out the door and you're like, I'm going to bring my son here or I'm going to bring my grandfather here. That's a great restaurant, right? You remember it. It kind of gets into your veins and it's in your spirit at that point and you want to go again. But when you walk out of a restaurant and you're like, what did I just have? And you're th- and it takes you like two days to remember yeah. your drink and food. Eh. You're probably not going back. And I would add that it's especially rare in the sort of list culture that we're in where people are just sort of like checklist and move on for to to be a repeat customer somewhere is much more meaningful now, right? Because there's so many choices. Yeah. No, I mean, that's when I walk out of a movie, I can tell if I really like it. If I'm like, man, I have to tell people about this movie. Exactly. I have to show them. I have to bring them. So really, is it more of a feeling that you have or is it more of a checklist where you're like, well, this restaurant has this. It has a... Natural wines, it has this and that. I think it's a combination. Right. I think people who love food and love to have food experiences, you want to first be nourished, right? And then you want to have a good time and you want to enjoy yourself. I feel like as far as like what's more important, the food or everything else, um, I feel like a bad experience with the service, a bad experience with the ambiance can help you forget the food. It can kind of negate Um, But at the same time, I don't think amazing service or amazing decor or what have you can make up for disappointing food. Yeah, it's like the Rainforest Cafe has amazing decor, right? (laughs) Amazing decor. It rains every like 30 minutes or whatever. No, it is amazing. Yeah. We used to do your birthdays there every year. I still do. Yeah, okay. I just stopped inviting you. Okay, perfect. (laughs) Because you were so critical about the food. (laughs) I was, sorry. You ruined it. Well, and the thing is like it rains too much for me. The lightning scares me. But, you know, the food's not that good. So it's it's like what I really want is rainforest cafe level decor, mm-hmm. but the food being, you know, Guy Fieri's uh, restaurant. Okay. <laughs> all right. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with some questions for all of you about the restaurant world in 2019. Okay. So in lieu of our normal categories, I want to pick all your brains a little bit about eating at restaurants in the year of our Lord 2019. Kevin, you wrote an entire freaking book about this great culinary restaurant revolution that we've been experiencing over the past, what, decade or so? And how, years. and how it's over. Are you sure? Because 
<laughs> I looked at this list <laughs> and there's some really good restaurants and I've been to a couple and they're great. Why are you so sure that this restaurant revolution is over? Again, you wrote a book about it. Yeah, called Burn the Ice. It's called Burn the Ice. Well, I will say that what I meant was the era and, and, and Nicole kind of called me out on it. It's like mm-hmm. the, the era of the independent, fine, casual dining, sit down restaurant. That was all That's farm. That's Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was all farm to table and Edison bulbs and reclaimed wood and and just that style of place. I think those are the hardest restaurants right now to succeed in this current era. I mean, I think what we saw in this list is iterations off of that that are like for the new era. Sure. Even out of this list of 12, what would you guys say is an exemplary, quote unquote, modern restaurant? First of all, I can't answer that question until you define what's modern. What are you meaning by the word modern? Tossing it back at me. I mean, very much of 2019. But that's a good question, too, because what does it even mean to be a restaurant in 2019? I think to be a great restaurant in 2019, you're not following traditional restaurant guidelines. I think a lot of these restaurants have decided to do things their own way. Um, they're just, they've decided to mix Thai with barbecue and, you know, 10, five years ago, people would be like, huh, what, what, in what, what city is that? In Portland. In Portland. I was about to say somewhere else, but yeah, in Portland. Mm -hmm. Oregon, Portland, Oregon. Yeah. My first college boyfriend is from Portland, Oregon. I've never in a million years told me. Yeah. We give him a, can we blow him up? I'm good. No. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think he's listening? He definitely. Is he stalking you? He listens to everything Nicole puts out. Does he have a Google alert? No, no. (laughs) But I'm sure he would be like, so. Southern barbecue in Portland, Oregon and Thai. Yeah, that's you can uh, there. I mean, that's that's a whole new concept. That's modern. Yeah. Right. Or, you know, working with your mom and starting a restaurant like Tammy in D.C. That's modern. Right. So I think, you know, your question is, totally lies in how a person is defining modern. But for me, um, I see these little elements in all 12 restaurants that show that they're avant-garde and they're totally outside of the box of what's considered, you know, normal restaurant culture. I think a lot of the the modern restaurants are about bringing, that they're deeply personal, but they're personal in this kind of more, you bring your whole gang, you bring your whole heritage, you bring your friends, you bring your family, you bring your ancestors with you. And so, you know, where we've seen in the past, like, you know, various chefs trying on the cuisines of other people's culture, you're seeing people owning their own culture and combining it with what's happening in their own local milieu and and creating something really exciting that has like just such a strong backbone of integrity to it. So kind of piggybacking off off of all that, I do want to bring up the F word, fusion. Um, yeah. Sorry. I so <laughs> this is this is a legit question. Does the word fusion does it mean anything? Is it totally relevant? Am I way off base now? Has it become like a farm to table thing, which is you know, it's so broad it doesn't really mean anything? I think it's more dangerous than farm to table. And probably like three months ago I was on the fence. I'm like, okay, what's up with this fusion word popping up everywhere? And then I interviewed Simone Jacobson, who's 
partner owner Tammy in DC and she flat out I didn't even ask her about fusion and she was like and fusion is a racist word she was letting me know do not put fusion anywhere in your write-up about my Burmese restaurant she basically said it's erasing the the less dominant culture typically in food and there's a history of fusion not respecting um the most flavorful food, which tends to be the food that may not be from um, a white culture. And just finally, like last week, I told Adriana, I was like, I don't want to use fusion here at Thrillist when we're talking about food. It also used to be, because um, I was thinking about one of the stories that I told in the book about Indian food. A lot of the times the, the serious chefs would feel compelled to somehow incorporate French techniques and ingredients into their Indian food to be considered elevated, right? If they wanted to be taken seriously, that was like, you know, 15 years ago. So now we're finally seeing more of the respect and more of the confidence also of people to be like, my food just by itself, unadorned, unmixed with some sort of Western European culture is enough to be taken seriously. And I think that's really important. Erin Byers writes about this. She calls it new Southern food, um, but she talks about, for example, Taylor, which is, it's, a, it's an Indian restaurant. It's not just Indian, it's Gujarati, but he incorporates some Nashville influences into, into his cuisine. But she, she makes a point like, don't call this fusion. This is something totally different. So have we found the word for it yet? No, but you yeah, know. Yeah, is there a word? I mean, that's kind of where I'm struggling too, because it's like, what is the word for it then? Does it have a word? Does it need a word? Does even giving it a word kind of invalidate? Yeah, way. yeah. Maybe maybe giving it a word diminishes it. Maybe we talk about Taylor as Taylor. Maybe we talk about Eam as Eam and so on. Yeah, it, it, it boxes things in a way that like they don't deserve to all be in the same box. Right, right. right. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and in not reducing it to something really simple, we allow it to express its full complications. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. Um, so let's talk about two things that, in my estimation have kind of been some of the rising stars of the restaurant world over the past year. Natural wines. We had we had a great bottle at Scars. Is it just me or I have a lot more places, especially New York, California, put a lot more emphasis on natural wines in their menu? For sure. 100%. Oh, my gosh. I feel like I'm learning about natural wines every single day. I'm not the expert. I definitely enjoy them. As soon as I pull up to a restaurant and I find out they have natural wines, I'm like, ah, <laughs> and I'd start ordering stuff and just tasting and then I'll make a note. Um, but I never really return back to the notes. I think natural wines, like all wines, you just need to be curious and keep tasting. I think people are trying to be thoughtful, right? right. People are trying to uh, give folks what they want. I will say this, though. I went to a women in wine conference and it was there that I realized that this natural wine thing it can be very elitist and it's very much a New York thing. It very much is a LA thing and a San Francisco and a Chicago thing. Probably 99% of people, they want their big reds. They want their Pinot Noirs, their Sauvignon Blancs. They don't even want natural wines. And even some of the fancy wine people feel like natural wines are like gross. Gertie's, for instance. Oh my gosh, I love Gertie's. Another best new restaurant? Yeah, yeah. best new restaurant right here in New York City in Williamsburg. They have an amazing, super approachable drink program that just so happens to have natural wine. But they also have a cellar downstairs or wine room with all American or primarily 
American Natural Wines. Yeah. Which is super dope. This is another thing that, like, I've gone so far I'm embarrassed to ask. I guess I could Google it. But now that you guys are here, what is natural wine? Isn't all wine natural? I know that sounds like a Seinfeld it bit. Is. But, um, like, it, like why, why is this natural wine? Someone described it to me like deodorant. Okay. Um, they're like, <laughs> wine that we love, mainstream wine, all has... I'm using air quotes here. Deodorant. She and is. natural wines don't have that. They don't have the additives. So, yeah, it's very much in the air. But, yeah, someone described it like that. Think deodorant and not wearing deodorant. Okay. <laughs> Kevin, you are from what I would call wine country, uh-huh. San Francisco, Northern sure. California. Sure. Uh, what natural wine? Is that is that a thing in San Francisco that people it are, is. are buzzing about? Um I don't think that they're buzzing in the same with the same sort of intensity uh, as they are in New York and uh-huh. and some of these other places. Um, I think that's also because we're in an area where they've done things a very similar way for a long period of time, and so in a lot of ways, these are the natural wines are sort of commenting on the longstanding practices of the people in my area. Mm. So in a way, you're sort of insulting me. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not as much of a thing, because, you know, I live in Brooklyn. We are in New York. I have been to no less than three kind of dinner parties where the host will specifically say, bring a natural wine. Oh, wow. I, I'm serious. Whoa. Two are the same person, but um, my friend Ethan. Hey, Ethan. Really? Yeah, so it's like very much a thing. Is it kind of just like a buzzword? Is it a marketing stunt or is there something? I definitely don't think it's a marketing stunt. It's a thing. Yeah. I think that, of course, big food cities like New York, we're always ahead of the game and then it trickles out to other markets. And so what you're seeing right now with your friend, I think that's we we have we have to have a whole nother episode about <laughs> Ethan. Uh, yeah, about <laughs> Ethan. You can't tell someone to bring you a natural wine because some of these natural wines can get pricey. Very good point. <laughs> I I think you should not be telling your guests what to bring. Period. You should just invite people over. You hear you that, don't Ethan? Tell <laughs> folks what to bring, Ethan. <laughs> And then get very specific and say, bring a natural wine. Wow. I know. Wow. I had the same thought. I'm glad we're on the same page. Ethan's the worst. You know, (laughs) the wine was good, though. I think the natural wine thing is also it it overlaps slightly with with the whole wellness thing that's also happening. I have to say, personally speaking, I metabolize natural wines a little easier than um, than regular wines. You can see you can drink more. But um, yeah, it's it's part and parcel of that whole thing. I don't know that we're quite finished with the whole wellness bubble. Mm-hmm. I think that bubble has got it's it's getting a little more um, kind of like farm to table. It's starting to become a little more sh- kind of like established. The other thing I want to talk about was this meteoric rise of the Impossible Burger, the Beyond Burger, the plant based meat substitutions. It has a real mouthfeel. Have we all tried some variation of that at this table? I've had the impossible burger. Mm-hmm. And? Uh, Did it possibly just, impress you? Uh, I mean, I feel like this. I I eat meat. Yeah. I, I was vegetarian for like 10 years. And I remember the first day I'm like, I want meat. I had a burger. Yeah. And I wanted a real beef burger, cooked medium. And I wanted it grass fed so I didn't have that heavy feeling. Um, and I like I like a burger like once a quarter or every few months or so. So I tried the Impossible Burger in Atlanta at Star Provisions. They have great food. 
And I had a few bites and I'm like, okay, it's fine, but just give me a regular burger. I feel like you have to put a lot on it to mask the the taste. The mouthfeel is definitely a beef mouthfeel. Mm-hmm. But all the ingredients kind of mask the other taste that I can't quite put my finger on. I can put my finger on it. I'd like I took a bite. I took one bite of an Apostle burger and I was like, yep, some sort of smoke flavoring and a lot of coconut oil. That is what I'm that's how they're making this happen. Oh, wow. Nutritionally, well, it's actually very similar to a hamburger, like in terms of calories and protein. Not so much iron, I don't think. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's a coconut burger. <laughs> well, Kevin, you've eaten uh, what several burgers? Yeah, over a here? few, <laughs> just a few, just a few burgers, just three hundred and thirty. <laughs> three hundred thirty. Uh, Kevin ranked every burger in the country, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You went to every burger shop, every burger shop, everywhere. <laughs> Only the don't best. Fact check this. <laughs> um, how do you feel about the Impossible Burger? Yeah, I uh, tried like an early iteration, like Nicole, and at first I was really impressed. I, I mean, I remember going to this restaurant and. The impost they had little uh, flags. Yes, on the ones that's that exactly like what they were yeah doing. Uh, that had and like you looked at every table and there was a flag on every table because everyone really wanted to. So they did a great job, uh, especially initially with their uh, like grassroots sort of guerrilla marketing before they kind of did their big launch. And I remember biting in and being impressed with like the way that it crumbled in my mouth and had these sort of like meaty elements to it. But the aftertaste left a strange, almost like grassy uh, vegetal feel, but it also, it, it didn't give you that satisfying meat punch, mm-hmm. which is, that's what they call it. The meat punch. <laughs> the meat punch. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so that, that was sort of the bummer for me though. I understand. I also like, you know, when you go around the country and eat 330 burgers, I remember after every city, I would feel terrible. Like I just, my body, I would get like the meat sweats and I just, oh, I, I was gross. Yeah. And you didn't look well in those I, days. No, I did not. And You um, looked like an undercooked burger, kind of, kind of gray. <laughs> thank, you, thank you. Yeah, I did. Stretchy. It was good. Well, for a little bit of context, uh, Kevin was our national burger critic for what, a year? Mm-hmm. I knew. A year and a half. A year yeah. and a half? Yeah. Who's counting, huh? Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Certainly not me. <laughs> not my wife. So I always just felt bad. And that was the thing that I liked. Like after I ate the Impossible Burger, you felt lighter. You didn't feel feel the sort of burden that you sometimes feel if you're like heavy meat. So when you were eating the 330 something odd burgers, did you have grass fed burgers? Because I feel like you get that uh, high quality meat leaves you with that kind of light feeling. You get that kind of heavy, bloated, gray feeling. It was a balance, right? So so, so I would go to like the local dive bar, whatever a food writer or a chef told me to go, I would go. So sometimes it would be like, uh, like hole in the wall dive bar. Sometimes it would be a fancy steakhouse. Sometimes it'd be a modern eatery. So I was getting like the range. So I definitely was getting some commodity meat in the gut. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll say this though. I don't think plant-based burgers are going anywhere. I think we're going to move to cell cultured meats. I was actually on a panel this summer or spring about cell culture. What do you mean by that? Meats that are made in a Petri dish. Correct. Yeah, like um, they get a um, a pork cell and then they just grow it. Yeah, or get a chicken cell. I think they've done the chicken before. There are a lot of startups in the Bay Area that are putting money, tons of money behind cell cultured meat. Is that vegetarian? No. 
It's just you. Ah, but it's more ah, environmentally friendly. Ah, okay. So that was the big debate at the at, uh, the um the panel that I was on. Uh-huh. Is this vegetarian? Is it vegan? Is cell cultured? You're taking the cell from an animal, right. mm. a dead animal, and you're replicating it. Are we being humane? It was a lot of ethical conversation at this at this panel, and I feel like. People are going to hop on that damn train, okay? They're going to totally hop on it as soon as it comes along. The the big problem with the cultured meat right now is it's too expensive. Like, you know. Yes. Right? It's like 100 bucks or more yeah, if you wanted a burger. Yeah, it's $100 burger? Yeah. It's okay. gone down and the science and the technology, the price is going down, but it's super, super expensive. But Impossible Burgers were like that when they first came out too. Right. And, and so it's in the like... The computer, the size of the room stage, of, and then you know they'll they'll keep getting smaller they're and smaller. They're, they're that big, huh? <laughs> yeah, so they're the giant. Cultured meat. If you could picture a burger, yeah. I'm making my hands the size of the room. That's how big the burgers are. It won't are. stop growing. It's like, they can start it, but they can't. It's like so the movie Good Burger. So someone's just eating it continuously to keep it down. Exactly. Uh, I want to ask you all about let, let's call it the showstopper dish of the year, the one thing you ate. Uh, at a restaurant that kind of just made you stand up, scream, maybe yell, holy shit. One we can dish. swear on this? <laughs> yeah, you can swear. We've been swearing the whole time. Shit. <laughs> yeah, it feels good, doesn't it? <laughs> it so what was what was your showstopper dish this year, Kevin? Something that's made you shudder. <laughs> In a good way. <laughs> it made me shudder. Oh, In man. ecstasy. Yeah. Um, I want to say, honestly, the... Seafood Pancake at Uma, which is this Korean restaurant, part of the best new restaurants list, 2019. Uh, And I I was talking to the general manager, Stephanie, about this, and she said that the iterations, they couldn't figure out how to get, you know, because you've got all this seafood that's different shapes and different sizes to get the crispiness of the pancake without it being over oily on both sides of it, right? To, to somehow even out. And she said they went through like a baker's dozen or more, like not actually way more than that. That's, <laughs> That's like, like 13. 13. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's, I thought a baker's dozen was like a hundred thousand, but uh, I got to look it back. It seems like it'd be a lot. I think <laughs> yeah. it's 13. But like, you know, hundreds of attempts to figure out the exact way to get maximum crunchiness on both sides. Yeah. And when you bite into this pancake, like it's flaky and then you're getting these bites of seafood, but it's not too oily at all. And each bite, it has this like, oh my God, like each one you're like, yes, yeah, this is perfect. Right. This is perfect. Where is Oma? It's in San Francisco. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And anyway, so that was probably the dish that made me say, holy shit, (laughs) shit, holy shit. Adriana, what's your showstopper? Um... Okay, okay. So so the duck garnitas at, at Cosme, I go there for my birthday. It's my it's the it's just the crowning achievement. It's just la I've They're had wonderful. The, I've They're, had that. Have you? Yes. Have it's, you? It's co- in Coca-Cola. Yeah, at Cosme. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I know. I've, I've I, it's it. just like, you know, whack me over the head with delicious. Thank you. <laughs> yes. That's yes. Cosme's motto. But, <laughs> That's Enrique Olivera's motto. We'll whack you over the head in, in, with delicious in, in Espanol. Yeah. Um What I, is that in, in Spanish? 
whack me over the head. Yeah, with deliciousness. Um, Póngame <laughs> con un maleto de delicioso. That's beautiful, I, I don't actually. Know. No, I'm I not like fluent. That. Oh, that was terrible. Um, and my ancestors just disowned me. <laughs> um, but also, like, the most, like, what thing I tried um, recently, I was in Jaipur and I had halvas are are these kind of like um, candied anything like you can you can you, basically in India, they can they'll add sugar just about anything. I, I had this like zucchini halva. It was crazy. It sounds gross. Like, what, why what would zucchini that? be delicious? It was like, and it probably wasn't zucchini. It was like some other zucchini like squash in India. Mm-hmm. But it like it had been grated and mixed with like butter and sugar and like some cardamom and maybe some like really juicy raisins and it was just sweet and unctuous and magical and yeah that's that's one of the dishes that I remember the that most. sounds amazing yeah Nicole what do you think oh my gosh I live and die by brunch in New York City mm-hmm. and I would say hands down I just said I, as they were talking I was like let me go through my phone because I try to take a picture of like all my restaurants meals so I can remember I have so many pictures of Gertie <laughs> I love their pastries I, I I love their pastries and they're not sweet they have this like savory hint and I think it's because they're using all these like really nutty flowers like the chocolate chip rye cookie and then they have muffins that change but their pastry case to die for they do a cinnamon roll on the weekend yeah you have to just go and like have brunch and breakfast and then take a big box of like half dozen pastries home something to go that's great yeah that's i would say that's some i went about four or five times definitely the most memorable meal or meals of 2019 at gertie's awesome okay we're gonna get to one last final question but before we do that we're going to take a quick break Okay, so one final question. We end every episode by going over the best in one category. So in that spirit, I want to ask you all one big question in summation of everything we just talked about. What's the best thing about restaurants right now in 2019 going into 2020? Cocktail menus. (laughs) That's really your answer? Yeah, I think that's the best thing. I think you're seeing really innovative cocktails and not just, you know, sour mixed with a little sweet and a cool spirits. People are being innovative. I hate to use that word, but yeah, people mm-hmm. are being really creative with their cocktails now. I see a shift in the cocktail world. Smaller lists with more focus on like bright and fresh ingredients and ingredients that people are not used to. How big of an aspect was a cocktail list, a spirit list, a beverage menu? Uh, in this list, the, the best new restaurant specifically? I think probably all or if not all of the restaurants, we could totally point to their bar program or their drink program and see excellence. Um, all of the, well thought out. Every almost every single one of the um, BNR restaurants, and even the ones that just have like beer and wine would be creative. You can you yeah. know you can be creative with the low ABV spirits and thoughtful, and with. Uh, alcohol-free cocktails, right? Which, totally. you know, you're seeing... Mocktails. Ooh, they don't like that. <laughs> oh, they don't. I'm no. sorry. Tammy had a beautiful... I mean, I had a 
um, what, what do we call it? A non-alcoholic cocktail. Well, there. What happened to mocktails? It's so catchy. Oh, no. That's, yeah. You can't it's defined say that. by what it is not, but then so is non-alcoholic. Well, Kevin, that, the last time I really saw you, we went out and we tried every cocktail <laughs> yes. on a cocktail taste menu. We really did. We did. It was like 13. It was, where was that? Uh, uh, where we at? Laurel? Uh... Oh boy! Well, <laughs> I mean, well, I think that's well, we were there. <laughs> no, um, uh, true Laurel, true Laurel. See, was, yeah, I was, I, yeah, we were at True Laurel. Um, but you know, actually, right there, tasting twelve different cocktails back to 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 back. To back, to back um, you do get the nuances, and it is like kind of having like a little tasting menu that gets you kind of drunk. Yeah, <laughs> I would even say very drunk. But uh, to get back to your question, which I knew you were going to transition to seamlessly, right. the uh, I think something else that you're really going to see more of is this idea of like uh, what you would see as maybe juxtaposed or just different... Um, different styles of food and drink playing nicely together. Mm. So, for example, what we saw with Eam, where they're doing Thai and Texas barbecue and proto-tiki cocktails. Like, you're also seeing a lot of sort of almost super groups of, like, uh, you know, combining different chefs together yes. that both seem, like, powerful on their own. Like the traveling Wilburys. Exactly. The food world. Exactly. It's a lot like that. There's got to be a more modern super group than no. I, to, I don't know why I thought of that. No, that's interesting. So, like, a whole... You know, I, I don't know if it's a theme or a motif, but just everything about the restaurant playing nicely together. You know, and those things are interrelated, right? So you, if you've got someone who's made their mark in Thai food and then you've got someone who made their mark in Texas barbecue and then someone who's made their mark in the tiki cocktails or whatever, to see them all sort of playing nicely together and figuring out the way that those can all sort of smoothly work. And part of this might just be because it's, more expensive to open restaurants. And so you need to team up in groups or, or that like gins up interest in the same way with movies where you're like, well, I've attached this director. I've attached this actor. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, you know, you're an actor. So you kind of, you, you speak to that sort of <laughs> I stuff. I do play my part. You could say. <laughs> um, so I think you're going to see a lot more of that going forward. 2020. Adriana, what do you think about, uh, your, your favorite thing, the best thing about restaurants right now? Uh, I, I think um, I think one of my favorite things is that we're starting to see specific regions or particular aspects of certain dif- certain cuisine. So so like Taylor on our list is Gujarati, not just Indian. So your restaurateurs are no longer feeling the, the burden to represent the totality of whatever. We're getting a we're getting um, a sense of the range and diversity of cuisines around the world. Um, just the other night, I went to the opening of, I think it's pronounced Jua. It's a Korean wood-fired restaurant. And I, I just love that. Like that We're seeing all these different cuisines within all of these different prisms instead of seeing them, you know, as these monoliths. Yeah, that's great. It's, it's, a, it's a little specific um, in a good way. I know uh, I was in Austin recently, and I went to a food truck called Didi's. And it specialized very specific northern Thai food, like from Chiang Mai. And I went to Chiang Mai, and that was, if you ask me the best food I've ever had, it was in Chiang Mai, northern Thailand. And it's great to see restaurants kind of zone in on these regions, zone in on these cultures, and really explore them deeply, rather than feeling like, okay, we need, we're a Thai food restaurant. We need to have everything. The greatest hits. Exactly, yeah. exactly. To be able to stand on your own and say, my food 
from my region alone is worth it and worth taking note of, I think is, is that's one of the great signs. Well, this was great. So everyone out there who, if, if you like what you heard, which <laughs> how could you not? Uh, the full best new restaurants list is up. It's live. It's on Thrillist. What's the quickest way to get there? Google Thrillist best new restaurants. Oh, you go to Thrillist.com. You go, go to Thrillist.com. You should easily find it on our homepage or you go straight to food, food and drink tab. And you'll find it. We will find you. <laughs> Let me put it that way. Yeah, we we'll find be in your you. inbox. We'll mail it to you. Ethan. Yeah. <laughs> I feel bad. He asked me, you know, bring natural wine. He was just trying to be nice. Well. <laughs> We're just ripping on him. Where can people find you, Kevin Alexander, on the internet? <laughs> uh, on Instagram at Kevin Alexander writes with a W K Alexander O three on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was gonna be your uh, aim. <laughs> K Alexander O three. Spider dude. My my MySpace. <laughs> Clear <Adrian>. Pepsi lover. <laughs> Crystal Pepsi. Crystal Pepsi. Come on. Adriana. Yeah, I'm Adriana V on Twitter and Adriana Velez on Instagram. Very cool. Nicole? All platforms, all platforms. (laughs) (laughs) Food cultures. Okay. All platforms. Yup. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest. Follow me while you're at it. At that Thrillist guy on Instagram. At Will Fulton on the Twitter. Those are the only two platforms I have, except for this one. But, you know, it's been fun. Thanks for talking about restaurants with me. I feel enlightened. Thanks, Will. Thank you, thank Will. You. Definitely, thank you. For the tips. Thank you, Will. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, All right. Anna. Bye. See you next week. All right, so a big thanks to Scar's Pizzeria in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. If you haven't been, you should definitely go. It's some of the best pizza in the city. And also, none of this episode would have been possible without our amazing and talented team, Big thanks to our EP on the Thriller side, Bison Messink. Of course, our Group 9 fan, Brett Kushner, David Zwick, and last but not least, Emily Feld. Megan Kirsch and Ocean McAdams steer the ship over a Thrillist. And a ginormous thanks to our executive producer at iHeartRadio, Mangesh Hatakudor. Most importantly, thanks so much to my podcast partner in crime, producer Molly Schulson. She's staring at me right now. Hello. And Randy Scott Carroll for editing this episode. And of course... Ernie injured that for mixing. You have to mix these. I've learned that. If it's unmixed, it just it just doesn't work. So thanks to all those people and a big thanks to you for listening. We hope you tune in next week. Bye. <laughs>